Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Um, Before I begin today, I wanted to just take a moment or two. First of all, thank you for those of you who have expressed concern for us. And again, I assure you, we are doing uh, absolutely just fine right now. Um, In fact, I think it's interesting how God provides. Uh, I happen to have available to me probably the top sound person and the top video person that we have in our fellowship, uh, who's obviously living in my home here at this time, to provide this for you without any uh, concern to anybody else. Um, In addition, I have been encouraged because there are those that I I will be honest, I have had enmity with in the past um, and have, have felt that they were far from God, that in this season of uncertainty, we are seeing them actually... Uh, turn to God, and I, I just find that very heartwarming. Um, I shared with you before the story of Alfred, uh, the Satanist cat, former Satanist, according to uh, Jonathan and Gabby Lowe, and um, uh, not only is Alfred a former Satanist, but evidently he's been getting increasingly into the Word of God, and I have to say that is encouraging uh, to see that. Um, though, as I examine that picture more closely, um, I find that Alfred's actually reading out of Proverbs 30 and seems to be focusing on the passage that says, Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. So I'm not sure if that's a statement of humility on Alfred's part at this point in time or something that we should be maybe just a little more concerned about. Um, Having said all that, let's get into our study here today as we wrap up what has been a series on the Psalms, and we are into the 145th Psalm. This 145th Psalm is particularly unique. Of all the Psalms, this is the only one that actually um, is entitled a Psalm of Praise. And in fact, it's from this Psalm that is entitled a psalm of praise, that we take the entire titles uh, for the book of psalms. It's all drawn from this particular psalm, the 145th. Um, Also, it is the last of the Davidic, or psalms written by David, 146 through 50, are not credited to any particular author, and we're not sure of where those necessarily belong. So this is the last of the Davidic psalms. It's the one that only one titled a psalm of praise and it's given its name to the entire book of psalms that alone is kind of interesting Um, in jewish practice this particular psalm was recited twice in the morning and once in the evening service 
And so this was something that would have been a daily part of a Jewish practice. As we look into this one here today, um, let's begin. Uh, Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. The psalmist speaks of Yahweh not only as God but as King. The psalms often will ascribe kingship to uh, God. But early in Israel's history, the Israelites responded to the wrongdoing of Samuel's sons at one point in time by saying, quote, Behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. No, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And when Samuel asked Yahweh for guidance, God replied, Listen to the voice of the people in all they tell you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not be king over them. And Samuel warned them that a king is going to oppress them and all the rest, but the people uh, refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, we'll have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so Saul became the first king of Israel, and uh, a real unfortunate failure at that, someone who um, fell away spiritually, uh, failed the nation, and ultimately commits suicide. Why is that relevant then in this psalm? I will exalt you, my God, the king, another translation says, or my king. Here is King David, the second king of Israel, who is now coming along and with no arrogance at all, with a complete simplicity and humility, is surrendering his kingship before God. And he begins to, continues on by saying, I'll, I'll praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. And so what David is saying in part here is whatever the character of the day um, or of my circumstances or conditions in that day, I'm going to continue to glorify God. Whatever the situation is, whether we get sick, whether um, we have those that uh, um, uh, attack us in some fashion or matter, whether we are uh, doing well or doing poorly, whatever the day may bring, in David's mind, not only is God king over his own kingship and rulership, but he's going to praise him every day regardless of what's taking place with him. Now it goes on in verse 3, it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, or greatly to be praised. Another translation says, so great is the Lord, and then this greatly to be praised. There's a linking of the two, that he's a great God and therefore is requiring um, or worthy of really great praise. If someone does a good job, we say they did a good job. If they did a, a really good job, we say they did a really good job. But if, if they are truly great and tremendous in whatever they achieved or whoever they are, then the, the, the rafters ring with praise. And God is so great that he's worthy of those praise. No, his greatness no one can fathom. And then this next line, verse 4, says this, One generation commends your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. One of the questions that we need to really process in our families and within the church is to what degree 
is one generation commending um, the works of God to the next generation. I, I would look to those that are in their 60s and above, to what degree have you or I passed on to those behind us and said, this is what God has done in our lives. This is who he is. This is how great he is. In fact, this entire psalm is really talking about the character of God. It's praising him, but it's also going to reveal aspects of his character. And it's saying that those things should be passed on to the next generation. One of the things that's been difficult right now is for people to gather on location right now, all the COVID stuff aside, because we haven't been having children's programs. And so it's difficult for those who truly, maybe in their 30s or 20s, want to pass something on to that next generation. They're finding that frustrated right now at this point in time. One person I, I'm in a relationship with, a really great person, had found themselves particularly frustrated. Uh, she wanted to make sure that this next generation was hearing the things of God. And fortunately, she took that frustration to God, and, and God spoke to her in that and comforted her and guided her in a way that allowed for a release, at least for the moment, of that frustration. We had others that were on location just last week and, and said no matter what, even without children's ministries, they're going to be there because they want their children, I think in part, and I'm sure themselves, uh, to be receiving something from God in a way that's just difficult to the electronic medium. And again, for those who are either obviously positive uh, in COVID or in a threat situation, it's wiser for you to stay away. Um, but for those that can gather, we gather. And part of our doing that, whether it's children's ministries, youth ministries, is to pass on what we know and what we've seen and experienced about God. And so I guess I challenge that to you today a bit. Uh, have you commended God's works to the next generation? Have you inculcated that in that? I'm, I'm struck by how much uh, it was important for my father to communicate to me and to others, but particularly to me and my sisters, um, God's nature and character to the point that his last words literally to me before his death was um, encouraging me to be a true, in his words, literally the translation or the statement was, to be a true soldier of the cross. And um, that phrase continues to challenge me to this day. The Lord is most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. The passage goes on here to verse 5. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate, David says, on your wonderful works. You know, previous generations talked about you, God. And, and I learned from the feet of my father. And I'll meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I'll proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. That language there, joyfully sing, the language there in the original term is like bubbling up or overflowing. And so there's such an awareness of God's goodness and the nature of his character that it just bubbles up and overflows. We can't top, stop talking about it. And so David's saying, I joyfully, just overflows, I joyfully sing of your righteousness. And now we get into his character a bit. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. 
this phrase, slow to anger, um, it's interesting, there's a part of this that has reference kind of to a nose, a nostril or something, and that seems a little weird. What does noses or nostrils have to do with anger? And two phrases could come to mind that might provide a clue. The first one is, um, you know, flared nostrils, which can have a, a sense of intense anger, the kind of anger that could lead to violence. The second is, like, if you've heard the phrase, his nose is out of joint which means they're disturbed or angry or holding a grudge. But the psalmist doesn't describe Yahweh as angry. Instead, he says that he is slow to anger. And this word is often used with regard to feelings, and it suggests patience. And what we might in our common language today refer to as a slow fuse. Like we've all known people who were quick off the mark, had a short fuse, people who um, got angry uh, at the drop of a hat. I often find such anger flows out of insecurity or, or other hurts that the individual has had. Our God is very secure in himself, and that's not who he is. Instead, he's described as slow to anger and having a slow fuse. Um, in times past, a slow fuse would have allowed the person lighting it plenty of time to escape before the explosion. It would be a you know, mark that triggered and you got away before it blew up. Today, I'm told that electricians use something called a slow fuse to describe a fuse that's engineered to survive a quick power surge without breaking the circuit. So it, it, it's... It's not a short one, it's a slow fuse, so when a surge comes through, it doesn't pop right away, it, it can handle that for a bit, um, and then resets without a big issue, without breaking the circus, circuit. In both cases, this idea of a slow fuse that we see invoked in this passage suggests a grace period to prevent someone suffering uh, from a hasty action. So... God is patient. He has a slow fuse. People, we, give him plenty of cause to impose punishment, but he often withholds his judgment to give us an opportunity to repent, to turn, to return, to, in fact, change. Our creator is never rough. The provider is never forgetful. And this ruler is never cruel. And so, as we're looking into David's revealing of the character of this God, this king, who has moved him to such praise, no matter what the events of the day, no matter what's taking place, and that passes down from generation to generation, is captured with this statement, the Lord is gracious. This is who your God is, and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He has a slow fuse. He doesn't fly off the handle. He gives us a grace period, a time to return, a time to repent before judgment comes. And he's rich in love. He goes on to say that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. This is um, caught up in a phrase called common grace. And the idea is that there's a common grace that we all uh, enjoy and partake of whether it's decent weather or 
crops that grow with the rain and uh, um, in this way he's good to all and he has compassion on all he's made. It goes on to verse 10, all your works praise you Lord and your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and they speak of your might. And here we see a, a kingdom line coming into play here. Um, they tell the glory of your kingdom, they speak of your might so that all the people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. And so it's talking about the glory of the kingdom, the glorious splendor of the kingdom, this everlasting eternalness of the kingdom, and how it endures through all generations. Um, maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, the king is dead, long live the king, and they would do this whenever a monarch died. Uh, to indicate that now he had he died, but a new king was in place. We're kind of covered. There's new one there. That's never said in the in the aspect of God's kingship. There's never a point, in regards to what we may have said in our modern times, that God is dead. There's never a time where where our king is dead. Long live the new king. All kingdoms are transient. Uh, this was true uh, of Rome at one time ruled the world and had a, a realm that, that stretched to all that was known at the time of the civilized world in the West. The Greeks once reigned as intellectual kings, but today the Greeks can't barely even manage their own economy. The British once ruled over an empire that it was said that the sun never set upon, but they lost most of that empire after World War II and um, are now uh, not nearly a significant force. Our own country, the United States, became the world's first superpower following World War II. But now we have seen China on the rise, and we've increasingly seen our own empire, the American empire, on decline. The circumstances of many nations most, if not all nations, is to wax and wane depending on a lot of different features, including oftentimes who they choose as their leader. But all those kingdoms fall away. All those kingdoms um, disappear over time. What David is grasping here as a king himself who knows that at one point in time his kingdom will end is he's caught up with the glory of God and the beauty of, of God's particular kingdom, and, and a kingdom isn't just a place, it's an idea, it's, it's um, a certain nature. There's something about the nature of God that has infused this kingdom with something that goes beyond time and space. It's going to last for eternity. Jesus often talked about the kingdom of God. He referenced it often and said it was present, it was coming, it was here with his own advent. And we know now this kingdom to be something that is present um, wherever the people of God are gathered. is something that is a spiritual force that is slowly changing and transforming this world. Uh, it is something that will come into the fullness of time when Christ returns. Uh, David's caught up with this. And I think that probably this king had a snapshot of God's kingdom that certainly no one of his time saw. And I just find it fascinating that here's someone who would have infused his own kingdom with his personality and his ways and his styling, 
knowing that it was transient, knowing that it would one time end, and was able to set aside enough of his own self-reflection and pride to not just embrace God, but to see in there a beauty that um, would never end. It must have challenged David a lot, just as a king himself. On one level, he would have been so conscious of his shortcomings, but on the other side, uh, so challenged by the vision of what he was seeing. Now, these next little few lines here, I'm going to touch on, but then I want to circle back and conclude in a few moments' time with this. And notice there's something that's repeated twice here. He says, The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Then it goes on and says, The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The point is, God helps those who have fallen <laughs> and can't get up. Um, he's the one that, that lifts us to our feet. It's funny, I've had now one or two situations where I've, I've had a, a pretty hard fall. And, and normally I just do a tuck and roll and pop up again. But once or twice it's caught me by surprise and I've fallen pretty heavily. Uh, nobody's been around to pick me up. Nobody's ever offered it, I think, that I can imagine. Uh, if it was in public, people would have been mildly embarrassed and kind of avoid or avert their eyes. But the implication of this passage is that the Lord is one who upholds those who fall. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He restores them. He makes it possible for us to stand again. Those of you who have really felt defeated in this season of time, who are feeling fear uh, over what's taking place, that seems to just keep you on the floor, you need to realize that you serve a God who is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does, that he upholds those who fall, that he lifts up those who are bowed down. Now, this next passage, verse 15 and verse 16, I'm going to skip by right now. I promise I'll come back to it at the very end, but I'm going to skip back because there's something specific about those. So we jump to the 17th verse, which is a repeat of a portion of verse 13 where he repeats again with one minor variation. The first one says the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. This one now says the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. And so there's something about that dual passage there that emphasizes faithfulness, that God is someone that basically you can trust, that there's a rightness about him, a righteousness, that there's a trustworthiness that he's faithful, that you can trust him, whatever else seems to be happening around you. God has not failed you or me. He's still walking with us. He goes on in verse 18, and he says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Maybe during this season of time, you have found yourself not only fallen and unable to get up, but um, you find yourself just crying out to God, like we talked about last week, even maybe just the, that howling song, that how long, God, is this going to be going on for? Uh, where are you at in the middle of all these things? And we said last week, you can't trust always the feelings that make you seem like you're alone. We need to know the truth of what Scripture tells us, that the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises. 
faithful in all he does. But the Lord is righteousness, or righteous and right in all his ways, and faithful in all he does. And as we affirm that in our thinking and within our own heart, then we can accept the fact, even if we do not feel it, that whatever our situation, that the Lord is near, in fact, to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He hears their cry, and he saves them, you and I. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he'll destroy. This phrase watches is kind of like a guardsman at night, like a sentinel who's there to make sure that, uh, that everyone's taken care of, kind of, kind of in a combat zone. He's part of a unit whose job is to be a sentry to protect and make sure everybody's okay. His watchfulness makes the difference between life and death for every member of the unit. But in this case, David's not talking about a human guard. He would have had a lot of experience with that, a lot of experience with military expeditions. He's not talking about a human guard who might miss uh, or fall asleep or not detect the danger in time to save his or her friends. In this case, David's referring again to his king, to his God, who knows all and sees all. And it's a promise that God's going to protect the lives of those who love him. That's a promise that you need to internalize. The Lord watches over all who love him. Now, this last verse is not the last part of what I want to draw your attention to, but let's touch on it. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is, in essence, a repeat of the beginning of this entire exercise in praise. As the psalmist you know, began off by saying, I will exalt you or praise you, my God, the King. I will praise and sing praises to your name forever and ever. Every day I'll praise you. He now closes by reaffirming that, by saying clearly, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. I'm going to be honest with you guys. There's a lot of times I find... Uh, life to just be annoying. And as those pressures build, I am not terribly inclined to praise God. Now, my wife will remind me repeatedly that that's what we're to do. And I find that annoying too sometimes. Or as another friend will advise me to do the same. But they're right. The times that we don't feel God near us, the times that we have questions, the times that feel we fall and we can't get up. Those times probably more than any other time is when we do need to praise God. We need to just step back and begin to maybe just repeat a song of praise, maybe put it on um, our iTunes list or, or, or play it through our phone in some way. If we can't bring ourselves up to offer praise, to let someone else do that, I think that's also one of the, the great things that is important thing about being together, to hear other voices in praise. And to know that we're not alone in those experiences. There's something stirring. I could sing the national anthem by myself, but there's nothing like being in the room or in a stadium with thousands of others singing that same thing. There's something special about that. And the same thing comes with 
singing praise before God. It's funny, there's this one song called the Hallelujah Chorus. I'm sure all of you have heard it. It's from Handel's Messiah. And when I was a kid growing up, <laughs> um, I, was, I was in gatherings once or twice where the song was played, and, and it's become a tradition that everyone stands when, that's, when that chorus is hit, because um, I think at one point in time, one of the first kings for whom it was played for in Britain or whatever else stood. Uh, he was so caught with it. And since that time, everyone stood. From the time I was a small kid, I thought that was the church's national anthem, if you will. Uh, and in a way, it was and is. Um, the Hallelujah Chorus, that triumphant singing of praise before God and, and, and the soaring vocals and all that's part of that. I don't see how you can possibly listen to that song and not find yourself caught in the rapture of Handel's worship of an almighty God. It just, even now, brings chills to me and raises the hairs on my arms. This entire psalm, the 145th, is David's hallelujah chorus. It's his song of praise, the only one named that way, and it has such an impact that the entire book of psalms was named for it. Now, Having walked through all that, in these final moments, I want us to revisit those two verses. The ones that are between uh, the Lord is trustworthy and faithful in all he does and righteous and faithful in all he does. Um, verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Everyone who's fallen can't get up. And then it gets very personal. He says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. All of us have fed animals at one time or another or pets. And you see how intent they are upon our hand. We have what they need. And they're waiting patiently, uh, deeply focused on us, waiting for us to release that in their hands. Those of us who have been parents or our parents. We can remember our children uh, when they were quite young and, and feeding them in their chairs. The writer here is trying to evoke the same thing, that we are so focused upon God, but that he knows what we need and that he gives it to us. In ancient Greece, it was customary for the peddlers who walk the streets with their wares to cry out as they walk those streets, what do you lack? What do you lack? And people would come out of their homes out of curiosity. Um, they wanted to know what he was selling, wanted to know uh, something that they might have needed or desired. And in the same way, God calls to us and says, what is it that you lack? I have it, and it's here for you. In a moment's time, we're going to be taking of communion. That is the ultimate thing that God gave us. That as we look to him in our sin and in our weakness, that he opened his hand, our, his hand and gave to us of his own flesh, of his own blood, to meet our need when we were in a fallen state, to show that he was trustworthy in all his promises, that he was righteous in all his ways, and then he imparted that righteousness to us to show that, as David knew intimately, that God is faithful in all he does. This morning, as a people, as we take of communion together, 
we only ask one thing is that you would hold on to it here yet and you already have received it at this point if you're in the in the room and um, that we'll take it together but as we do that I, I encourage you to reflect upon this psalm and what David was crying out in his worship before God and know that the God who is righteous and faithful sees you where you're at and as you focus upon him that he opens his hand and gives to you that which you need as we prepare our hearts for that going to have an opportunity to listen to the 145th Psalm as it's put into song by a modern group here of today. So, Father, as we come before you, preparing our hearts to receive of the Eucharist, I ask, Lord, that you would have those, whether gathered or scattered, to be lifted up and encouraged this day, and as our eyes fix upon you, as we trust you, as we look to your faithfulness, that you'd renew our spirits, encourage us this day, Lord. Banish fear from our hearts and renew us today. That regardless of whatever's happening in our day, that like David, we could praise our God and our King. We commit these things into your hands, Lord. Meet with us here this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.